You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Good morning, the Field Church, and blessings on you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm so very blessed to be with you this morning, and I am so humbled to serve you. As mighty God does all of his work through his great word, in his great love, and for his great glory. I pray that he would increase and that I and we would ever so decrease. To allow him to do his great work, through his word and give it opportunity to pierce through bone and marrow so that he can sanctify us in his truth. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. Luke 9, 7 through 9. I've titled today's message, Jesus is heard about, but not embraced. Jesus is heard about, but not embraced embraced. Because as I described last week, and is as true every week, the title simply points us to the main point of the passage. The author has a main point that he is intending to communicate, and we aim to understand that main point. And this title points us to the main point of this passage, which is that although at this point in Luke's gospel, the news about Jesus is spreading and people are hearing about Jesus and those people that are hearing are talking about Jesus and seeking Jesus, those same very people are not putting their saving faith in Jesus as the Son of God. And there are some reasons why they are not doing so that we are going to uncover mainly willful ignorance. They are willfully ignorant to the truth. So stated more concisely, the news about Jesus is spreading. Many people are hearing about him and talking about him and seeking him, but many people still do not believe in him. The picture that we are actually going to see here today is a sad and warning-filled picture of unbelief. A sad and warning-filled picture of unbelief. Because there are some reasons why people are not embracing Jesus, and it's mainly willful ignorance. So in this story, if we were going to kind of come up into this point where we are before we read, the apostles have just been sent out, as we have discussed for the past two weeks. And now, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Luke is writing to Theophilus, the recipient of this letter. And he is telling him how at this point in the story, the news about Jesus and his ministry is spreading. The information has reached the ears 
of many people and powerful people, specifically, it has reached the ears of the ruler of the Galilee region who is named Herod Antipas. Now, Luke is reintroducing Herod Antipas into his gospel because we have seen him before, specifically in Luke chapter three. And Luke is reintroducing him here now purposefully as to give us an update about what Herod's mindset is during these times of Christ's ministry. And Luke will again later on build upon this moment and bring Herod back into the story once again, and then eventually show him again in his involvement in the crucifixion. And so as of now, though, Luke is showing us that Herod has heard that Jesus and his ministry is spreading. The news about Jesus has spread to his ears and to many other people. But as the news has spread and reached his ears, Herod questions the true identity of Jesus. And so do the people. They aren't sure what they want to believe about Jesus, about who he is, about what his disciples are doing. And the reason why Herod is unsure, amongst another of reasons that we see in the text, is because many people are saying many different things about Jesus. And many people are saying different things about his apostles and how his ministry works. So again, Luke is showing the reader here at this point in the story how Herod hears about Jesus and his ministry, how many people are saying different things about what is happening, and how Herod is unsure about what he wants to believe about him. Or to say it another way, the news about Jesus is spreading. Many people are hearing about him, talking about him, and seeking him, and yet many people still do not believe in him. Now, as we are going to look at this, there is going to be uncovered more in this story than meets the eye. There is more to this story than what you see. As innocent as this will seem at first glance, when we read these simple three verses, from what we see in the rest of the Bible, this is not a neutral story. This is not an innocent inquiry by Herod about who Jesus is, as if Herod genuinely wants to know about who Jesus is. Or if he's, as if he's genuinely confused and wants to know the truth. And this is not an innocent disagreement among the people about who Jesus is, as if they are genuinely trying to figure out this truth. This is actually a picture of willful ignorance. This is a picture of the news of Jesus and his gospel spreading by the words and the works of Jesus and his apostles and Herod hearing about Jesus, talking about Jesus and seeking Jesus, yet choosing to ignore the truth about Jesus and the call to follow Jesus, which will ultimately lead to him handing him over, handing Jesus over to be crucified. So this is a picture of self-centered priorities, 
preventing Herod from believing the truth about Jesus. This is a story about predetermined, self-centered, preoccupying values that are keeping Herod from caring about or seeking to uncover the truth about Jesus. This is about self-serving, willful ignorance and sin. And this is about not spending the time to actually stop and contemplate the truth about Jesus and what it calls of your life and following Jesus. This is a picture of how subtle and deceptive the choice can be to ignore the truth because of our own comforts and our own consciences. This is a picture of how this subtle, deceptive choice brings about an ignorance of the truth in order to protect our own comforts and conscience. And this is a picture of how this choice will eventually lead to a permanent rejection of condemnation of Jesus and his identity and his calling. So my prayer for you today, as we look at this story, is that you would see your own willful ignorance, if it, is, if it exists, that you would see your own willful ignorance, and I would see my own willful ignorance, if it exists, and that we would choose not to ignore the truth because it threatens our own comforts and our own consciences, but instead that we would repent and seek the truth about Jesus and allow it to set us free from our tight-gripped commitment to protection of ourselves. This is what this gospel can do. If we would see the truth and we would pursue the truth and not ignore the truth because it protects or it threatens comfort and conscience, but we would seek this truth and we would allow it to set us free from our tight-gripped commitment to protection of ourselves, Jesus would be the joy of our hearts and we would be set free and be able to follow him for a lifetime and enjoy his benefits. So I pray that God would open our eyes to our own willful ignorance. Or secondly, I pray that this would break your heart for the willful ignorance of someone you know and love who is choosing only to see what they want to see about Jesus and ignore the truth that you would pray for them in love, that God would enlighten the eyes of their hearts and that they would see and embrace the joy of the gospel, that you would be convicted to go and lovingly point them to the error so they can be saved and so that Jesus today would either reveal to us our own willful ignorance, that we seek Jesus up into a point until it threatens our own comforts or our own consciences. So we'd rather live in a willful ignorance about the truth or about various truths found in his word, or that he would convict us about the people we know and love and how they are determined or have decided to live with a willful ignorance, ignoring the truth about Jesus and pursuing their own way. So before we read, let's pray. Let's ask God to enlighten the eyes of our hearts for the purpose of love, not for the purpose of puffing up or conceit. The Bible warns us that knowing the truth and seeing the truth can actually bring about a puffing up 
or a conceit, and we don't want that route. We want to humbly attempt to rightly divide his divine word of truth and grow from it and simply see it for what it is and, and allow Luke to help us in this particular portion of scripture, that we would respond in humility and in love and in repentance and in faith. So let's pray. And as we pray that we would uh, decide in our hearts, we are opening our hearts to the truth about God and his word and Jesus, and that we wouldn't live with willful ignorance and he would convict us about those we love, that we would pursue them in prayer and in sharing with them. So let's pray and then let's read three verses and then discuss one point that encompasses all of our verses today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And we need you. We need you to open your word to us and open our eyes to it. That the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to your truth. God, I pray that as we see this picture of a seeing Jesus, of a seeking Jesus, of a hearing about Jesus, and of a talking about Jesus, and yet a willful ignorance to the truth of, about Jesus, that we would be convicted ourselves that we would see that maybe we've only sought Jesus to a certain point until it threatens comfort and conscience, and that we would see our contentment with willingly living with ignorance to the truth, and that we would be drawn back to you, and our eyes would be open, and we would embrace the gospel and allow it to set us free from the tight grip protection of ourselves. God, I pray that we would also see in this text and be convicted of and convinced of the people around us who are deciding to live in willful ignorance and that we would lovingly want to pray and pursue uh, their receiving of the gospel. Help us in all of this, God. We need your help. We want to be changed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. Luke 9, 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. This passage, what a helpful passage, a simple and short passage in its quantity and clarity, yet profound in its content and wisdom. The single point that we will observe in this story is the threat of truth, the threat of truth. And this is found in verses seven through nine. This is found using all of our verses combined. And before we expose this text verse by verse, we will point out indeed that the truth about Jesus is threatening. Therefore, Jesus can be heard about 
and he can be talked about, and he can be even sought after to some degree, yet there can be a foundational refusal to embrace him and his ways. To say it another way, you can hear about Jesus, talk about Jesus, even seek Jesus in various ways, and yet not want Jesus because he doesn't line up with what exactly you want him to be or I want him to be. Therefore, we refuse to embrace him and believe in him and follow him. We get to know Jesus up into a certain point and we seek him up into a certain point until he begins to threaten what we want him to be. What, when, it, when we seek Jesus to a certain point until he begins to threaten our values, threaten our lifestyle of sin, threaten how we want to live, threaten our worldview, threaten our system of belief, or threaten what we think he should be, or what we think is loving, or what we think is nice, or what we think is fair. So instead, we choose willful ignorance. We choose not to stop and slow down and seek the truth. And instead, we use what we already know or what we want to know and choose to live out what we want to live out with just some level of willful ignorance about the truth. So this is the picture that is going to be uncovered in this passage today. And so to uncover the story, you can see that as we have discussed in the past couple of weeks, this time in Jesus's ministry is where this is established one of the main ways of spreading his message abroad was by word of mouth. That is why Jesus sent out his 12 on mission. This is what he was under. He was under real limitations of time and space. And his helpers were going to be his, his mouthpieces to speak for him. Remember, they were going to travel light. They were going to depend on him. They were going to be focused on the mission. They were going to travel light far and fast. They were not going to be distracted by material things. No shackles in that way. They were going to be contented to be in one place until they left a town or village. Remember this. And they were going to abandon earthly things and adventure for him. Now, if they were not received, they were to shake off the dust from their feet when they left each town as when rabbis entered Palestine after some journey in a Gentile land and they shook off the last particle of heathen dust from their feet. A town or village who would not receive them was as if they would not receive the Messiah himself. These apostles would treat them like strict Jews would treat a heathen country, one who refused to believe the Messiah and instead condemned itself. And this ministry at this point, when we open up our verses, has been so mightily effective that it has reached the ears of Herod, who is now hearing about Jesus. And now there is a distinction about what the crowd is hearing and saying about Jesus as well. Massive responses were happening. Some said, perhaps it's Elijah. 
The forerunner has come. Some have said, perhaps this is the great and promised prophet who has arrived. And Herod, we see his conscience come to the surface here, which is why he chooses willful ignorance. There is one thing lingering about the possibility of Jesus and his ministry in Herod's mind, and it's about John the Baptist, who he has evilly eliminated and who he thought had maybe come back to haunt him. So let's look at these verses verse by verse, and we typically walk straight through, but today, since it encompasses all of them for this one point, we're going to kind of jump around inside of this text. Imagine kind of like a bounce house. So to, so we're going to jump around inside from verse to verse. So keep your Bibles open in front of you. You're going to have to have them open and I'll reference where I'm at. So to start, the question Herod asks himself, if you look at verse nine, it is this, who is this? That's the question that Herod is asking. Who is this? This is the main climax of this section. That is what Luke is showing us. Luke is showing us that although Jesus is heard about by Galilee, this region, remember the apostles were in this area, blitzing this area. Although he is heard about, he is not believed in. You see, we ask, we see Herod ask this question and the question that is surrounding Jesus. And this situation we see is also surrounding Jesus that through the eyes of Herod and through this situation of Herod, we are also seeing the rest of Galilee's responses. So we're seeing Herod's response and we're seeing the rest of Galilee's response in this particular passage, as well as the, the people saying that maybe he's Elijah, John the Baptist, a prophet. So the question is, who is this? And we don't have time to go and look back at all of the instances or to go forward and show you all of the instances. But just like Pilate at the end of Jesus's life, who asks Jesus personally, basically, who are you? The same question that Herod is asking here. This question has been asked over and over again in the book of Luke. And it's fitting because the main point of Jesus's ministry is to show who he is. And so people would believe in him and be saved because it's the main point of Jesus's ministry. It's the most important thing that anyone could ever know. And it's also the main point of Luke and his gospel and the other gospels in their writings to show Jesus and to show who he is. And so the fact is the main point of all four of the gospels is to answer this particular question that Herod is answering or asking in verse nine, which is, who is this? So verse John chapter 20, verse 31 says, but these are written to you about the gospels so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But the difference here in this particular passage is that Herod and the people don't really want to know the answer to this question. This is Luke showing us that Jesus is being rejected. 
That's the point of this section. This is the state of affairs. He is being rejected by Herod and he is being rejected in Galilee. Not because they can't hear his teaching, not because they don't see the miracles, not because they can't verify the teaching through the miracles, but because they don't want to know the truth about Jesus. They don't want it to be true. They are not in it for the truth. You see, this is the Jews not believing in Jesus and Herod himself not, be, not believing. How do we know now that this question of Herod and this questioning by the Jews is not genuine? How do we know that this confusion by the people is not genuine and how it leads us to willful ignorance being the issue? Well, let's start in verse seven and follow along with me. It says this, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. We see how this starts with the word now. So in light of what we just read in the apostles going and blitzing Galilee with the gospel and the healings and the confirming of the message that it's true by the healings. It signifies, this word now signifies a connection to our last passage. And so this is what's happening. Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening in connection with what we just saw was happening, which is the ministry of the apostles. They're going, they're doing business in Galilee. Gospel sent ones. And Herod heard about all of this commotion, all of the effectiveness, the polarizing nature, the responses, and the gospel is spreading. The apostles are going out and they are speaking and they are sharing the gospel. This speaks to the effect of the sent ones with the gospel and the Christians now who carry it. Herod had heard. It had spread through Galilee. You see, going always equals spreading with the gospel. That's why we go. And that's what's happening here. But as we're going to see, spreading also equals threat and hate and persecution and mocking and ill intentions. Going equals spreading, but spreading equals threatening. And so these people are now being threatened with the gospel, which is the reason why Jesus will eventually be given over to death because he's a threat. We see this is the reason why the attitude of the Jews and the attitude of Herod is uncovering that this is spreading, but it's threatening because it's unavoidable now. Faithfulness of the apostles, now they're multiplying. Herod's not asking about the apostles because the apostles did a good job. They pointed to Jesus in their ministry. Herod is asking about Jesus. They were faithfully preaching his message and Herod's not asking about them. He's asking about Jesus. So this is a result of preaching and evangelism. So the rumors spread even to Herod, to his ears, to Herod the Tetrarch. This is Herod Antipas. That's his name. He calls himself the king of Galilee. So we're pulling out of this first verse, verse seven. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. So if we're gonna uncover Herod the Tetrarch to figure out his motives here, we can talk about Herod for a moment. This anticipates the threat 
of power to Herod. And remember, the final rejection will be Herod handing Jesus over to Pilate. So if you know when Jesus eventually is handed over to Pilate by Herod's hands, Herod and Pilate become friends because of their common hatred of Jesus. And so we don't have time to go back to chapter three. If you listen to my message in Luke Chapter three, dealing with verses one through two, you can hear about the total background of Herod. But what we can just say for a few moments is that Herod comes from a family of dysfunctional rulers. Tetrarch means that he was a ruler of a fourth of a region. For him, his place of rule was Galilee, where Jesus' home base of ministry is. So we had this ruler, Herod the Tetrarch, and he was a a ruler of a small area called Galilee. So he had this small rulers complex. Galilee was only about 50 miles by 20 miles. He called himself a king, but he wasn't a king. He was a tetrarch. Luke is being a good historian in this moment. Herod is is not very important, but to himself he is because all of the Jewish people in this region were subject to Tiberius Caesar, who was the powerful ruler of Rome, who ruled over all of the Jewish region of Israel. So Herod the Tetrarch's father is Herod the Great, right? We remember him. He was a non-Jew also who oversaw all of Israel. He is a, a Roman who oversaw all of Israel. So Herod the Tetrarch received the son here in our passage, received his right to rule from daddy, Herod the Great. Both of them Romans, so both of them overseeing Israel by the charge of Tiberius Caesar, and they're hated by the Jews because they're not Jews, and they're hated by their Roman counterparts because they are not rulers over a very big areas. And so what we see here is that this Herod the Great, the father of Herod the Tetrarch, who we see in our passage, is the one, if you remember, who we hear about when Jesus was born. That's Herod the Tetrarch's father, Herod the Great. So we know how crazy his dad was, right? Because just as Herod the Tetrarch, his son here in Luke chapter 9, is being threatened by the truth about who Jesus is now in his adulthood and ministry, in so many ways, his father was also threatened in that time because of Jesus and his birth. So in many ways, Herod the Tetrarch is threatened here by even some of the Jews wanting to make Jesus king. It threatens Herod the Tetrarch's power and his reign and his rule. This is a threat to him. So also his father was threatened by misunderstanding Jesus' kingship. And then he killed babies because of it. So remember, this is when Jesus went down to Egypt to wait until Herod the Great was dead before he came back to Israel in Nazareth. Herod the Great even killed some of his own sons. We could spend a lot of time talking about him. So now Herod the Great has given these four regions to three of his sons and one other man. Archelaus was his uh, son who ruled in Judea. Philip ruled in Iterera and Trek. 
uh, Trichonitis, and he was later replaced by Herod Agrippa, who, if you remember, we'll hear about him in Acts. And Lysanias was the ruler of the north and west region of Galilee. And then Herod Antipas, he was the one who was given Galilee itself. They were all monarchs in their regions. And Herod Antipas is Herod the Tetrarch, who rules from when Jesus was about two years old until after Jesus died. He was a Roman, hated by the Jews, despised by the Romans, and he was full of wickedness, just like his father, Herod the Great. And so much wickedness that it leads us now to, as it pertains to here in Luke chapter 9, the wicked deed by Herod the Tetrarch that begins to uncover Herod's motives about asking the question, who is this? You see, what we remember from Luke chapter three is that John the Baptist rebuked Herod the Tetrarch and Herod then arrests John. Later on then, what we can see in the other gospels is that Herod beheads John at a party. Herod the Tetrarch was afraid of beheading John the Baptist because of the fear of the people. Because remember, Herod was a ruler of the Jews. He was fearful that the Jews would hate him even more because they were followers of John. But when the opportunity came, he beheaded John because John was threatening his sinful ways. And if we follow the chronology of Mark, the book of Mark, we know that this recent beheading of John the Baptist was probably actually only days earlier from the passage we are looking at today in Luke 9, 7 through 9. So days earlier, Mark speaks of the chronology, the ordering of this, which is that King Herod heard of it. You can look in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 21. Mark, uh, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is, this why the, uh, that is why the mirac these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So that's the story of what we're looking at today. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So that's what we've looked at. But Mark goes on. He says, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But when the opportunity came, and we know at this point John was killed. So chronologically, we see Mark gives us insight into Herod's intentions in this very passage. Verses 7 through 9 in Luke chapter 9. When asking who Jesus is, John was just recently beheaded. And some people were saying that Jesus was John the Baptist. And so Herod's conscience is fearful. He asks, 
a question. And Mark also shows us more of what Herod actually said, which is John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. You see, Herod didn't want to know who Jesus was. He wanted to make sure that Jesus wasn't a threat to his evil deeds. He didn't want to face the consequences from the Jews hating him because of it. He didn't want to face the consequences. Jesus was then a threat to his power and his reign. And he thought he got away with it. He didn't want to be caught, even though this was in public. Herod said, which we find in verse 9 of our passage in Luke, something very similar to what we saw in Mark. He says, John, I beheaded. Who is this about who I hear such things? Herod says this to himself and he's haunted by his conscience. And Jesus is a threat to his sin, to him getting what he wants, to him thinking that he got away scot-free and that this might be exposed. He's fearful of the consequences. And this is why, even though in verses seven through eight, it gives us three things that people were saying about Jesus. The only one that Herod focused on was in, in verse nine was John the Baptist. Verse nine, when Luke says Herod sought to see him, it wasn't because he wanted to know about him. It was because he was threatened by him. He didn't want to know, let me figure out the truth about this man so I can believe it. He said, I want to keep my enemies closer type of thing. Let me get in control of this Jesus and find out more to make sure he's not a threat. So this is why now back in verse seven of our particular passage, we've kind of covered all of verse nine. In verse seven, he was perplexed. This literally means in the Greek, he was unable to find his way out of this dilemma. It wasn't genuine curiosity about Jesus. Like, hmm, so many people are saying different things. And he's, is he the son of God? Is he offering salvation? He's asking, is Jesus a threat to me or not? I know that I am guilty because of my sin. I want my sin. I want my life that pleases me. Is Jesus a threat? Matthew gives us even more insight into this. Matthew 14, one through three. He says, at the time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So he feared for the grounds or the reasons because of what he had done to John and the implications that it would have, especially with the Jews, if John were to come back. He had a guilty conscience. So this is what's happening with Herod. That covers verse seven, right? Because if you look at verse seven, it says, now Herod the Tetrarch, we covered that. 
Uh, now the connection to the last passage, Herod the Tetrarch, who he is, the fact that he heard about all that was happening, what was happening, and how he was perplexed because some said it was John and that he had been raised from the dead. We talked about that. Verse 9 we talked about as well. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this? This is his focus. Remember, we've talked, we just talked about this, about whom I hear such things, and he sought to see him, the reasons why he sought to see him. So briefly now, just in verse 8, which is all we have left, let's look at the other instances which shows us insight into what the Jews were believing and how they were rejecting Jesus. Verse 8, by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old has risen. This is now what the Jews are saying. So now really this story is as, as it pertains to Herod, but through the story, we see the reactions of all the rest of the Jews, which is also rejection. The same thing that we see from Herod. Herod serves as a representative of sorts to all the people in the region. And Luke is showing us the state of rejection of Jesus. In fact, chronologically, right before the sending out of the 12, so right before this particular story, Mark shows us how Jesus was going to Galilee and how he was rejected in Nazareth, which is his hometown in Galilee. So we know these Jews are not genuinely asking this question. We know that they have just rejected Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, which is in Galilee. So now the fact that they are saying these things about him being John the Baptist or Elijah or a prophet, we know that these are not genuine. The people's confusion in our passage is not genuine either like Herod's is not. They were trying to figure out how to rationalize Jesus away. Why? Because he was a threat to their self-righteousness. Jesus is a threat to Herod and to Herod's sin. And Jesus is a threat to the people and their self-righteousness. He's a threat all around. So this point here is what Luke is showing us, and that is why Luke is showing us that the news about Jesus has spread. Many have heard, many are talking, many are seeking, but many still do not believe in Jesus. So in addition to John, here's what they're saying. They're saying that Jesus might be Elijah who has come. This comes from Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Or this comes from Malachi 4.5. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day comes. And so what we know is that Elijah was so supposed to precede the Messiah, which really meant before the Messiah, the prophet was going to come who was like Elijah, preaching the same or similar message that Elijah preached. We know now that this is John the Baptist, who is a type of Old Testament prophet, and he is the forerunner of the Messiah. This was John's job to go before the Messiah, to prepare the people's hearts. He was an Elijah-like prophet. Similar message. So this is John the Baptist. We even know this because at John's birth, the angel said, and he, meaning John, will go before him, meaning Jesus, in the spirit of Elijah. So the people are okay with this being Elijah, the forerunner, but they're not okay with this being the Messiah because 
Jesus is not the type of Messiah they want. He's not the king who will establish his kingship on earth. He's not the one that will give them power in their lives and bring them up so that they can be powerful people and a powerful nation and successful in all of their ventures and looked up at by other peoples as they look down upon them. This is not the type of Messiah that they want. Just as Herod didn't want Jesus because Jesus was a threat to Herod, he was just trying to figure out how much of a threat Jesus was. He wasn't genuinely asking the question, who is this? Let me uncover the truth. So these people were not genuinely confused. They were okay with him being the forerunner, but this was not the Messiah that they wanted. They were okay with Jesus being part of their religious order, but not okay for him to be the Lord of their lives. This was an unattractive, as Isaiah 53 said, unmajestic, as Isaiah 53 says, lowly, as Isaiah 53 says, servant-like, as Isaiah 53 says, life requiring repentance, preaching Messiah, and they didn't want him. He was lowly on earth. He was on his way to be killed. He offers no health, wealth, and prosperity, and he requires all of their lives. And this threatens their self-righteousness. This threatens their values. This threatens what they think the Messiah should be and how intrusive he should be in their lives. This threatens their view of eternal punishment and eternal life. This threatens their families. This threatens their heritage. This threatens their pride. This threatens their reputation. This threatens their own self-ability. This threatens all of it. They don't want to receive someone like this. Yet we know he is the king of heaven, but he's not the type of Messiah they want. That's why they're still pursuing willful ignorance. They're not genuinely confused that this is Elijah. This is a good reason to not call him the Messiah. They're justifying and rationalizing Jesus away. So maybe he's Elijah because that's not what they want in the Messiah. This is not what they want to see. His appearance, his claims, his personhood is a threat to them. And still others, verse eight, last part, are saying he's a prophet. Matthew 16 says that some of them were saying that he was Jeremiah. So again, Deuteronomy 18, 15 said this, your God, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you or from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. So this predicts a prophet coming before the Messiah. And this is a good solution for them as well. Just like Herod, Jesus is a threat and the people want to kill him and they eventually will succeed at it. And here they are wanting to call him anything other than the Messiah. Later on in Luke chapter 13, we see an update about Herod and how difficult uh, it is that he decided not to choose to follow Jesus for Jesus. Because here in Luke chapter 13, it says at that very hour, some of the Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. So that's what this is now turning into in Herod's heart and mind. And he says, Jesus says, go tell that fox 
Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I will finish my course. I'm gonna be done here soon. So furthermore, we see that the people are rejecting Jesus. They're okay with it being John the Baptist, Elijah, or a prophet, because if he's the Messiah, he's a threat. They will seek him only to a certain point until it threatens comfort and conscience. And so also Herod is not asking the genuine question, who is this because I want to be saved. They, he is seeking Jesus to make sure Jesus is not an actual threat to his life. He wants his sin. So furthermore, Herod will hand Jesus to Pilate in Luke chapter 23 after questioning him and mocking him and after realizing that Jesus is weak here on earth and that he's not a threat to his kingship, he's actually going to mock him by putting a majestic robe on Jesus. Herod will. As a way to almost say, yeah, you're no threat to my kingship. I'm in control of my life. I will get what I want. He's basically saying, you're no threat to me. And so Jesus doesn't have to throw pearls to pigs. Jesus doesn't answer his false accusers. He answers nothing to them and he lets them go on their way. We're gonna see that account. We're gonna see the account of Herod handing him over to be crucified. You see, willful ignorance, just like we see from Herod and from these Jews, despite the truth being offered to them and right in front of them, will lead to a permanent rejecting of Jesus, having him crucified out of their lives permanently and him not being a threat to, him any, of, to them anymore, which will ultimately lead them to hell. And the same is true for us. Willful ignorance, despite the truth being offered to us, will lead ultimately to a permanent rejecting of Jesus and having him crucified out of your life so he's not a threat anymore, which will ultimately lead you to hell. And so church, people who are watching, let me encourage you to not pursue willful ignorance. You know if it's true, that you are seeking the truth up into a certain place and point. You will be religious and pursue Jesus and the scriptures to a place that does not threaten comfort or conscience, and then you will stop there. You would rather live maybe with willful ignorance about what the whole Bible has to say, rather than know it and have to be committed to Jesus fully. And so to close us out here today, what I wanna do is I wanna lovingly help you with some points that will help us to repent from willful ignorance. As we close out, how can we repent from willful ignorance, if we see this in us, in ourselves, and as we see it in others and we wanna lovingly help them. There's five things. Number one, pursue humility. First and foremost, we must pursue humility. If we're gonna repent from willful ignorance and see our souls saved by Jesus, seeking the full truth about Jesus, we need to first pursue humility. What keeps us from wanting the truth about Jesus is actually pride. To be quick to listen to the truth and be quick to submit to it. In fact, what I want is the most important thing. The fact that what I want is the most important thing or Jesus is not what I like or I don't think he aligns with what I think he should be and my values or let me assess his claims and see if I can accept him or this isn't right or fair 
or loving, or I'll do Jesus on my own terms in my own way, or I don't want him saying this into this area of my life, or I want my sin. All of that is pride. It's threatening to us and it's treating Jesus as if he's not the God of the universe who holds all truth and who created us for himself. And so James says this, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to listen or quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself for time's sake. Often this verse is misunderstood. It's, it's misunderstood to be about relational guidance. It's not about relational guidance. This pertains to humbling yourself to the word of God and get rid of the sin that has become a higher priority than the Bible and embracing the truth. It's about being quick to listen to the word, slow to speak back to the word and slow to become angry when the word doesn't say what we want it to say. You can go back and listen to my sermon that I preached about this passage on our content site that I taught in the book of James. You can go back there where we talked about the false understanding of this passage and the true understanding of this passage which is this, that if you are, you, that you shouldn't be, uh, that you should be quick to listen to the word, slow to speak back to it, slow to become angry when it doesn't say what you want it to say. Then you will receive the word implanted in you, as this says, and it will save you. So humble yourself. Be quick to listen to what the word says. Don't speak back to it and don't get angry when it doesn't say what you want it to say. Receive it, allow it to be implanted in you and then it will be able to save you and get rid of your wickedness. And so we see how humility leads to receiving the word, which leads to salvation. Number two, read the Bible. Read the Bible all the way through over and over again and take it for what it says. Read the Bible all the way through over and over again and take it for what it says. John 17, 17 says this, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Hebrews 4, 12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrows, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You, uh, and then we see in Psalm 119, four through seven, it says, you command your precepts. You have uh, to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Statutes. Then I shall be not put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all of your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your righteous rules. By the way, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. It's all about the word of God. And God chooses to make the longest chapter in the Bible about the Bible. And so that shows us how important it is. You should go read Psalm 119 after this service and more. Look at this in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker has no need to be ashamed. Why? Because you're rightly handling the word of truth. Listen, this point here is about reading 
all of the Bible, the whole counsel of God, reading it over and over again, over and over. Maybe you read it through once a year and then at the end of the year, you start back and read it through once a year again and do that for your entire life. This will cause you not to only see what you want to see in the Bible. The whole counsel of God will pierce through your heart and give you understanding of what the truth is that you may be called to follow it. You might be rightly handling it. You don't have to be ashamed because you are not picking and choosing what you want to know about Jesus and living with willful ignorance. You're seeing the whole Bible and you're seeing the whole story about Jesus, which is the story of the whole Bible and how he came to die for sinners and how we follow him. Therefore, you should read the Bible over and over again, all the way through for your whole life. Number three, join a healthy church. Listen, This is to hear God's words preached and to be built up by others in love. The local church is ordained by God to teach you and to equip you with his truth. If we want to avoid willful ignorance, picking and choosing to hear only what we want to hear about Jesus and only getting some of the truth and being content with that because it threatens conscience and it threatens my comfort. We should avoid that by joining a healthy church. This is so believers can build each other up. We can become holy, set apart and conformed into the image of Christ. Like to the ones who are believing, we as ones who believe that we're learning his ways and following him. And the local church is supposed to be a beacon of light to those in the, in the lost world. Come be a part of this. Come be a part of this. And to break free from their pattern of sin and darkness. So what we see in Ephesians chapter 4 is that the apostles were given, Ephesians 4, 11 through 18, I won't read it all, but he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds to teach and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so what we know from this is that the church is meant to make us holy by preaching the whole counsel of God. This is why the call and the reasons for church membership we could spend all day upon. Because it is so, the scripture is so rich about this. It's clear that as it pertains to the main point today, church membership protects us from willful ignorance, even as believers. It protects us from picking and choosing how faithfully we want to follow Christ, from picking and choosing what we want to know and what we don't want to know, from picking what we want to follow and what we don't want to follow, from choosing to seek Christ to a point to where it begins to be uncomfortable and no further, or to where it intrudes on my values. Membership to the local church protects us from wanting to know only a little bit about Christ until a certain point, because then at that point, it kind of becomes socially intolerant, and I'm not accepting of that. How does the local church do this? Well, first, the local church is directed to preach the whole counsel of God. So we submit to hearing every bit of God's word, not just what will line up with our values. As we see Paul charge Timothy, a young pastor, his main job is to preach the word, just continually over and over again, preach the whole counsel of God to protect people from hearing what they want, only what they want. Second Timothy four, one through four. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. You see how there is 
there's three main aspects to this, which is why we must be leery when there is no rebuking or reproving involved in preaching. Because this is what the purpose of the word does. It shows us where to repent from our sin. And so he says to do it with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This feels good. This is what I want to hear. This is uplifting. This is showing me that I have power, making me victorious instead of preaching the whole counsel of God. This is dangerous. And then they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So in Acts, Paul testifies the reasons for him preaching the whole counsel of God was because there was twisted teaching. And if anyone hears the whole counsel of God and they choose to ignore it, then this is willful ignorance. And so Paul says in Acts 20, 26, he says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. God. So this is why it's the safest to join a local church, be committed, not allow yourself to miss, to hear the whole counsel of God, because it protects us from willful ignorance. And this is why it's also safest to just preach through books of the Bible, because what we talk about on uh, what we walk into on a Sunday morning is simply what God has decided to give us for that particular day. It's just what comes next in the scriptures. It's safest. Or we might be tempted to skip a topic or a series that threatens our lives. So we'll just skip church that day because this series or this topic threatens us. But if we preach through a book of the Bible, then what happens is we just take what comes next. It also prevents the preacher, like me, from picking what people want to hear or what is not a threat to my life or to my people's lives, it, it, where it's not a threat to the values of, of our people as to not just preach pet topics or to preach that we might build a bigger church because it's all positive or conducive for church growth. You see, we can't get away with this when we preach books of the Bibles, like fear that we'll lose big donors or fear that people won't come anymore. It doesn't get to be this way when we preach through books of the Bible and only preaching maybe things that people want to hear like power and victory and God will surely prosper our lives. We can't do this. When we preach through books of the Bible, the main point of the sermon is the main point of the text as the author intended to communicate it and the application flows from what that main point of the text is. So it protects us from willful ignorance, from seeking Jesus up into a point when we commit to the local church and the regular hearing of God's counsel. And just to be vulnerable for a second, it would be easy to avoid texts that I believe would not make us more successful as a church. And believe me, I could figure out the formula. We could figure it out how to grow and how to make this a bigger and better with more powerful texts and more powerful, victorious words from the Lord. But we must take what he says moment by moment in his word. He decides what we hear. And so with this being said, we hear his word. Number one, 
we pursue humility. Number two, we read the Bible over and over again. Number three, we can join a healthy church. Number four, briefly, we should be discipled. We should allow someone to teach us God's word and to help us apply it on a regular basis. Second Timothy 2, 2 says, you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And watch this, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, which is the word of God, entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach it to others also. That's discipleship and multiplication. And this here is the commission of Paul to Timothy for discipleship or multiplication, which allows him to continue to grow and others to grow, which protects them from willful ignorance. Number one, pursue humility. Number two, read the Bible over and over again. Number three, join a healthy church. Number four, be discipled. And lastly, number five, pray. Because we need God to soften our hearts and open our eyes. The fact that we want to avoid supernatural or uh, we want to avoid willful ignorance, it's a supernatural work that God must do. As Paul said, uh, prayed for the Ephesians, he says, I do not cease to thank God for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know the hope to which you have been called. And so we need God to open our eyes to his truth so that we wouldn't live in willful ignorance. And Psalm 119.18 says, open my eyes that I might behold one wondrous things out of your law. Church, this is a way we can avoid willful ignorance. My prayer is that for you, if you are, are, are watching this and are convicted that you have pursued Jesus to a point until he has threatened your conscience and your comfort, that you would take this advice here and you would pursue humility that you would look at his word and you would read it over and over again, that you would join and become a member of a healthy, a, a local healthy church that preaches the whole counsel of, uh, of God repeatedly, that we would also be discipled. And lastly, that we would pray for God to soften our heart to his truth. May God cause us to be believers who follow his word and to avoid willful ignorance. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we look at, something that seems so simple and yet is very complicated. I pray that, the, that our hearts would become um, softened to the truth and that we would not live with willful ignorance as to only hear your word or seek you to a certain place to where it begins to threaten our comfort and our conscience, but that we would be people who seek you fully, and to uncover your truth. God, we don't want to be like Herod, who wants to see who you are, Jesus, only to the point and to ensure that you're not a threat to him. And we don't want to be like the people who are okay with various forms of religious activity that you perform, that you might even be the, Messiah, the front runner of the Messiah, but that we wouldn't be like them in not wanting you to be the Lord of our lives because it's too threatening. God, we don't want this to be true. We want to be people who seek to uncover the full truth and follow your whole counsel. I pray that you would make us people like this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.